All right, we're going to get at it. We're going to move right into our message time. And uh, if you get your pink cards out, um, dude's favorite colors, right? You're not really excited about that. So we've been in a series, uh, 10. Many of you maybe have not been a part of that. It's really helping restore kind of an appreciation and understanding of our Bibles and, and how they're broke down. Um, I would apologize I couldn't be here last week. Uh, I was watching, though, and you had a pretty good teacher last week, I heard. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to tell Trisha, you only had 20 people excited about her. Um, no, she did a great job on the wisdom and poetry section. So, again, we're in a series in 10, and each of these little color cubes represent kind of a, a way to break up uh, the, 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 the Bible. Many people don't understand the way the Bible's broken down, and, and we want to kind of remove some of the intimidation um, that it has. And so today, we're going to talk about prophets, and it's the major prophets. And there's, there's five of those, and we're gonna, I'm going to talk about those in a moment. Um, just a word about prophets. Um, in the Old Testament, a prophet is a person who functions as God's spokesperson and is commissioned by him to deliver his, his word, either to individuals or to groups. The prophet receives the word of God through various means, including dreams, visions, and, the, uh, and theophanies. Theophanies are like angelic beings. And so when you read in the scripture, there may be um, Balaam who's, who's walking on the road and he has an angel appear to him. Um, Moses had kind of angelic presences. You just read throughout scripture, Abraham. Uh, they had a visitor. Someone kind of give them that, okay, God's talking to me. Now, we're specifically talking about the Old Testament. And the reason that's important because prophet's role changes upon Christ's arrival, death and resurrection. That is a shift in God and how he is operating with his people on earth. Now, what I mean by that is I would not uh, be a believer that there are prophets any longer in the New Testament. I would believe that there's gifts of prophecy, but it looks a little bit different in the New Testament. Probably a minor conversation, but I want, I want to make sure we hear that this is really primarily Old Testament. So prophets did something very unique. They would be those who would prophesy about something coming. They would hear from God. God would tell the prophet, hey, listen, tell the people this. This is coming. And so they would. In that, you need to know about 353 prophecies are fulfilled that these prophets do hundreds and sometimes thousands of years before Jesus comes about Jesus coming. And they're fulfilled with the life of Jesus. So a prophet, even though they're prophesying for the people in that time, in that space, that they're doing that, it often has a double meaning that, that points to Jesus. A lot of the prophets in the, in, the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, are pointing towards Jesus. So you could read them with two different applications. One's for the moment. You know, Isaiah, we're going to look at Isaiah. He's talking to the people in Israel. He is a Jew himself and he's prophesying to them, but it's also prophesying to us later. You'll see this in a moment. Okay, so uh, I wanted you to kind of land the plane. Now I want you to draw this on your pink card. I'm just joking. You had it easy last week with Trish. I just wanted to bump it back up, you know, like make it really tough. No, some of you have asked, where do these things fall? So 
I want you to see in your Bible, if you can look at here, this main set of boxes that go through are your chronological books. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah. Notice that Chronicles is, is the some of the same stories, and that's why it's put underneath. But look at all these other books. They show up all throughout here. It has stories within that story. The reason that's point, uh, important, look at these pink books. These are all the major prophets we're talking about. They land in these time periods. Does that make sense? So your Bible isn't ordered chronologically. It's because they were authors, and they had to put them in sections. Otherwise, they would have been parsing out pieces of that book all throughout your Bible. Now, that's why I do enjoy, I have a bunch of different Bibles. I have a study Bible. I have, but I really enjoy, Trish and I, this chronological, it's a New Living Translation chronological study Bible because it does that. It breaks it all apart. So you'll be in Genesis, and, uh, or I'm sorry, you'll be like in Samuel and all of a sudden a psalm will hit. Um, you'll be in... Uh, you like Ruth pops up in Judges, and so it will order it that way. I think it's very, very um, unique and, and helps. So you can see here, this is the kind of the season that we're in, and I'll bring this back, I think, next week just to kind of help you understand. All right, Deuteronomy 8 says uh, about prophets, I will raise up for them, this is God talking, a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. I will put my words in, in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. And I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. Okay, so just quickly, so we don't have a lot of time here. There were prophets all throughout the Old Testament. There were false prophets and there were godly prophets. Some of the false prophets could actually do certain things, predict and do what I would call some sort of magic tricks. Now, what I mean magic tricks, it wasn't like they were sleight of hand. It was empowered by, and, uh, by Satan himself, by evil. When you read like uh, in Moses, when Moses is trying to free the Israelites from Egypt, remember? Pharaoh had his what? His magicians, and often doing the same kind of thing that Moses, if Moses would turn his staff into a snake, they would do the same thing. Don't you ask yourself, how did they do that? I, I want to make clear there are false prophets that have power. There are forces today, friends, that have power. Now, we're warned to stay away from those. So whether it's like a fortune teller, you may go to someone who reads tarot cards. Friends, stay away from that stuff. They, they might have some ability to do certain things. But as scripture says, you're to stay away from that. There is this false prophet and godly prophet all throughout the Old Testament. So how could they tell? Well, they knew that it'd be an Israelite and if it came true. So, you know, if a false prophet was prophesying and they only had like a 50% return, they might get stoned. Not stoned like in drugs, but stoned like taken out. Um, they would be definitely taken care of because they would see that they'd be a false prophet. So this is going on, obviously, in, in that time. So on your pink card, if you would, write the number four, and then write five boxes, five boxes for the five different major prophets we're going to use. Now, title this major prophets. Now, these are called the major prophets not because they're better or they're more important. It's because their writings were bigger. That's simply it. 
That's all it is. Bigger writings, more, more in their books, all right? Now, this is an important concept, so write this down. Make sure you get this. Now, I want you to write these four words. Reveal, repent, return, and restore. Now, I want to kind of do an illustration for you. So, if this stool represents God, not to be blasphemous, obviously, um, but as, as the people of God, we know the story of God. The whole story of God is... He creates his creation, it's perfect, we fall away in sin, and God's whole story from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through Revelation is that what? God is looking for this last word, restoration, to restore. What happens though, after the fall, he begins to what? Create a chosen people through Abraham and Isaac. He begins to capture a people, the Israelites, and to call them to be set apart. In that... He sets up a way for them to follow him. And so this represents, I'm the Israelites, and I, we, are, we are faced towards God. We are following him. We are, we are in his, um, underneath his sovereignty and his rule and his reign, and we are loving him. We're pursuing him. He's captured us. Not, not necessarily physically, but more emotionally and spiritually. So what you read in your Bible is this story of the Israelites and friends, it mirrors our story. That it doesn't take long for them to start to do this. They start to move away. And the farther you read, you start to start, they start to turn and take on different practices. They start to, maybe they, they have some wealth or they have seasons of plenty and they forget. Remember the book of Revelation at the end, it says the six letters of the churches. You have forgotten your first love. You, you, you have turned away. So this story throughout the scripture is of this, this season, remember, where it's, they had kings and they had uh, leaders, but they would be in good times and all of a sudden they would be in bad times. And the bad times is where they were walking away. And look at the gap. Farther and farther away. So what was a prophet to do? First is to reveal. Now, I, I have to say, would have to, wouldn't it kind of be a bummer if you got the call to be a prophet in that season, right? Tap on the shoulder. Um, I need you to tell a nation that they're evil and they've fallen away. Not super fun, especially when you read some of these prophets and what they had to do is crazy. But sure enough, they get the tap on the shoulder and what do they have to do? Reveal to them. I have to tell you and reveal to you how far away from God you are. That was the role of a prophet. And if you've been lost, like driving instructions, been lost, and I don't, for, for me it's this way. My, re, my emotional reaction is measured by the degree of how far I'm actually lost. If I'm like a turn or two, that's great. But I've gone like a couple times where I've been 20 miles lost. I'm angry. I'm upset. These prophets, depending on where they are, they have to say, look how far you've fallen. I'm going to reveal and expose to you how far away you've gotten. Then it's a call to what? Repent. He would call them to repent. The word repent actually means to, to turn. To turn around. Now, what's beautiful about how God has called us to himself 
he, he, he knows that we can't clean ourselves up. It has to be Jesus Christ. That covering and that, that sacrifice for us. But he says, turn away. Turn away from what you were pursuing, that other love, the thing that you're looking at. So now I'm turned back to God is what he says, turn. And then he would say to return, begin to clean up, begin to get rid of the things that you were committed to. You read in the Old Testament, they were sacrificial uh, pagan things they were doing and, and certain food laws they were breaking. And so God would say, return, intermarrying with pagan nations. They would just, God would say, look what you've done, look what you've done. And so they would, they would try to purge and return and eventually for the whole purpose of restoration. All right? So this story is like this throughout your whole Bible. It's like this, up and down, up and down through most of your Old Testament. Well, that wasn't working because as God knew, they kept, as we do, what? We keep falling away. There had to be one sacrifice to make it right. And that's where we find Christ as the ultimate in restoration for us. And we'll see that in a moment, especially with Isaiah. But I want you to hear this is because this is similar to where we're at today. Some of you find yourselves in that place where you have seasons where you're, you're really focused on God. But isn't it one of those things where you find yourself, it's usually someone or something that has to go, man, I, I've just been revealed how far away I've walked from God. And we find ourselves not very different than these Israelites. So these are the role of the prophets, largely in the Old Testament. Um, they had other roles, obviously, to give prophecy to us about Jesus, but largely that's what they're to do. So the first one is Isaiah. Isaiah, uh, I put down the phrase here, is the king is coming. Isaiah means salvation of God, and he is going to primarily... He was a, a Jewish dignitary himself, an aristocrat. He, he had some wealth. He wasn't just a poor prophet. He, he's prophesying often about Jesus Christ. And the term that gets used often about when Isaiah talks is the suffering servant, which gives us this picture of Jesus. Now listen, listen Isaiah, I picked passages that would really kind of earmark that section. And you'll, if you've, you've done any reading of Isaiah, you might re realize this one. But Isaiah 53, 4 through 6 says this, Listen to the prophetic words that will point to Jesus but he's telling the Israelites right then and there. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. This is Jesus. We are all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all upon him. This is Isaiah 53, 6. Uh, th this is a powerful passage. It gives you the picture of Isaiah, his role not only for Israel at that time, but obviously for us as we're looking forward to the Messiah. The next book is Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah is going to be first writing his book in Jeremiah about captivity is coming. Um, now, again, I, I missed one point. When we see the kings enter in after David and Solomon, we start to see the, the kingdom split. Israel goes into a northern kingdom, which is called the northern kingdom, and then Judah, the southern kingdom. And 
prophets kind of show up in both places, but largely right now in the southern. And so in the southern kingdom, Jeremiah is there. He's saying, listen, captivity's coming. Because what God would do, when they were falling away, God would allow these other nations to come in and to take them captive, to destroy them in battle, to pillage the temple, to whatever. Now, can I just stop here for a moment? I, I've, some of these are so applicable to today. Do you think you love your children enough to allow for them to pay the price for their own decisions? And isn't it true in parenting we've heard that if we keep taking the penalty for a child's decision, what happens? They never learn how to make a decision and own that responsibility, right? You've got to let your kid learn. The crazy thing is the same for us as adults. We've got to learn to take responsibility for decisions we make. Largely, our culture is messed up that way, right? We try to take the responsibility for someone's decision away from them. They never feel the weight of that. God operates similar, I believe. You find that God will allow whatever adversity that we have decided on for ourselves to come into our lives. It's not that he's not there to, to rescue and to, to help us, but I believe that God is trying to capture our attention always. He does this with the Israelites. Jeremiah is going to write a book. It's, it's really around, listen, there's a problem. We better repent. I'm revealing this to you. Remember Jeremiah 29, 11, that famous passage? It's the promise, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. It's God saying, listen, follow what I'm... Will you, be in this restored state. I've got great plans for you. Don't wander away. And you find that they often do. The next book is Ezekiel. has a lot to do with error and justice. And the word mean, uh, Ezekiel means God makes strong. It's a lot about the nature of God and, and how he sees justice. Um, and God pointing out the error of our ways, largely Israel's ways. Um, they're in exile. They're actually in captivity right now by the Babylonians. And there's a whole passage in Ezekiel that I don't have time to read. Um, the fourth book is written um, also by Jeremiah. And so it's not a prophet. The prophet's name isn't Lamentations. It's written by Jeremiah. Now this book is written, remember he said he warned them problem was, something was coming? This is after it already happened. And so now he writes a book called Lamentations, which means to lament, great sorrow, regret, or grief. And it's after Babylonians attack, and it's a way to remember it's sad songs, sad songs. I mean, really, these are laments of the pain and the agony and the longing for. Now, again, we often are drawn back to God when what? when adversity hits, when we feel captive by adversity, pain. Isn't that when we learn most in our life? Listen to this passage in Lamentations and listen to the heart because I think we found ourselves there. Lamentations 3, yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope because of the Lord's great love. We are not consumed for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great 
is your faithfulness. This is the famous hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, written in captivity, written in pain, written in adversity. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait on him. The Lord is good to those who, whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Can't you just sense they're in captivity, they're in pain? Friends, this should give us the reality and the, and the concept that God's people thrive and not just survive, but thrive in any situation. Whether it's a dictator, communism, whether it's terrorism, the church of Jesus Christ, those people who are committed to God can thrive anywhere. It doesn't need a political system. In captivity, they're writing worship songs to God. It should say something about us, too. That our lives shouldn't just be that we're coming back to God when things are bad. We need to figure out that when they're really good, how are we still celebrating the hope of Christ? How are we still embracing the one that gives us salvation? Here's the last book, Daniel. It's probably the more popular of the major prophets next to Isaiah. And that's largely because it's a lot of story. We actually taught um, some sections of that last season. And remember, it's Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it's, it's the story of Israel being t- taken captive um, by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, but Daniel means God is my judge. He was a high-ranking official member because he kept having visions and interpretations of the dreams of, of, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, Daniel's book largely has a lot to do with Israel's future and for people who are kind of prophecy geeks today that they love figuring out, which I'm not really super excited about doing. I've been asked often to teach Revelation and what it means, and I'm like, I struggle with that because I don't know what it means. And I couldn't tell you, like, Russia's the, the evil one, and helicopters are locusts flying all over, and, you know, I mean, there's all these interpretations, and I'm, I'm kind of making a joke of it, but I don't know. So I don't want to speculate. A lot of people have sections of Daniel that they'll push forward to today, which I do think have relevance. I just don't think we know. I don't think we fully understand yet. But Daniel, great book, great section. And remember the the key passage when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three young boys, reply to Nebuchadnezzar before he throws them in the furnace because they've not worshipped the gold statue. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves to you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your hand, Nebuchadnezzar. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Once again, in the midst of adversity, followers of God can thrive anywhere. Whether it's concentration camps, whether it's midst of persecution, it just should give us hope and maybe inspire us to give us a little bit more endurance and metal in today's American culture. Because we're so fickle. We so don't know persecution. We so don't know adversity like the rest of the world understands it. And it's not to shame us like we should feel it and we need to go experience it, but it should help us to understand some of the petty things that keep us away from God in our Western culture. 
boy, it'd be great for us to focus in on some of these stories of, wow, the metal, the, the, the endurance, the boldness, the courage. So draw a line down, and I want to kind of focus on one last passage here that really lands us in our response time. It's Isaiah chapter 6. I don't want you to take any notes. I just want you to listen to me because I think this passage is profound. Just write Isaiah chapter 6 and then read that this week. It's Isaiah and he's been given a vision. And we don't know if he's been teleported to the throne of heaven literally. But he's writing of this and it says, In the year of King Uzziah, that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Remember Tricia said, do you see God? Because when you see God, he starts to enlighten you, he starts to grow you, he starts to change you. It says, I saw the Lord, high, exalted, and seated on the throne. I have a hard time getting through this text without feeling just the weight of, what would that be like? My imagination running wild of, what would that be like? The throne room of heaven and seeing God seated on the throne. We probably could just stop right here and our imaginations run wild enough to go, I'd be overwhelmed. Yes, I think we all would. But it goes on, it says, and the train of his road filled the temple. Not only that, could you imagine the throne of heaven? I, I can't even imagine what it's like. It must feel like f for eternity. It must be magnificent beyond anything I've ever could have imagined. And yet the train of God's robe fills the temple. It's all over. It's just flowing everywhere. I think you'd feel something. What, what would be your physical response? It doesn't stop there. It says, and above him were seraphim. It means angels. And each had six wings. Would that put a, a scare? Would that put chills in your spine of never seeing a creature like that? And not only that, six wings, two of them are covering their faces because God's glory and holiness is so profound. Then two, they covered up their feet. And then two, they're flying all over and they were calling to one another. This is Isaiah giving us this picture and it would have to be so profound. But this is what they were saying. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. C can you say that with me? Just re repeat it after me. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Okay, but the problem is, it says in the next text, the sound of their voices, they were shaking the doorposts. Can we shout it out? Can we shout it out as loud as we can? Can we do it? Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. We're even subdued. Could you imagine shouting that to where it would start to shake this room? The sound of their voices, the doorposts, and the threshold shook the temple and was filled with smoke. Here's Isaiah's response. Woe to me. You know what that means? I'm, I, it's, 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 a se it's a second line. I'm ruined. I'm a disaster. 
I, I am a mess. I am a fallen, broken, dirty mess in front of the glory and the holiness of the Creator. Remember that gap I said? It's not just a gap I can even comprehend. The gap is so great, I'm just drawn to my face. Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Here's the first point. When we see God, we see ourselves. Friends, this morning, I want you to know as a local church, and my role as a pastor and our staff is not to change people. It is to create environments where hopefully the holiness of God and His Holy Spirit so confront you that you see Him, that you drop to your knees. There is no class, there is no song, there is no message that I can do that can change the heart of any person. Only God can do that, and it's when you see God yourself. You don't come to God with logic. You're struck with the ruinedness of who you really are. When we see God, we see ourselves. We see our brokenness. I couldn't help but hit this passage because I feel like every time I go here, I recognize I'm a pastor of unclean lips. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm I'm fallen. And I need God. Woe is me. I am ruined without an answer to my uncleanness, to my sin, to my brokenness. It says, then one of the seraphim flies right to Isaiah with with a live coal in his hand. And it taken from tongs from the altar. It means it's burning. It's on fire. and And it touches his mouth. Because remember what he said, I'm unclean lips, which just represent the heart. In Jewish culture, when you said my lips are unclean, it meant my heart, my soul, meant everything a part of me. It's not just he had a dirty mouth. It meant that his whole life was broken. And it says, he touched it with my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Do you notice something here? Isaiah did nothing. Why do we keep working to do something for God as if we can earn right standing with him? Why do religious systems still today, even in Green Bay, operate that you have to do certain things so many times, often, 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 to get credit? Friends, that is not the biblical Jesus Christ we read about. Isaiah does nothing except receive a gift. You've been atoned for. Your guilt, I'm taking it. Your sin, I'm taking it. How profound. Only God can take our sin and guilt. Only God. So when we ask people to be a part of things at our church or try to to call you to read your Bibles, it's not because do that so you earn favor with God. It's, it should be a love response of a heart so drawn to God that you're overwhelmed by the throne room 
of heaven. And as God, as you see God, it should draw you to this book and draw you to want to be generous. <coughs> to draw you. It says, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Could you, could you imagine God for all of us in this room every week? It's like, friends, Jesus Christ has come and died and paid the price for every one of you in this room. I've taken the sin and guilt. Hey, anyone, anyone want to follow me? Anyone want to just, will anybody listen and do my bidding? Is anybody ready now? I've taken the guilt. You don't have to earn it. I mean, I've taken the, the sin. You don't have to earn that righteousness. I've taken the guilt. You should feel no shame. Anybody ready? And Isaiah can do nothing else except send me. Send me. When we see God, we respond. Friends, churches are dead all over our country and world today. Not because God's not a God that's real and active. See, they haven't seen God yet. When you see God, he, he moves you. When you see God, we don't have to try to help people volunteer time and put time in to the local church, the bride of Christ. When you see God, you don't have to ask people to forgive one another no matter what it is. When you see God, you do not have to mandate that people do certain things for him. They begin to respond. This morning, we are as of a simple response, just a very simple one this morning. And Bobby and Emma are going to lead us, and I want to ask you a question. Are you ready to return? I don't know how far away you are and how you're maybe pretending that you're not that far away. Israelites did. They used to fight some of the prophets. Well, let me, let me, you're not getting this. Let me illustrate this a different way. For four years, I've been dealing with my shoulder. But, like a lot of you, what did I do? I can work around it. Met with some trainers, did some exercises. And you know what? You would have never known. You would have never known my shoulder hurt in certain places. Why? I kind of covered it up. A lot of you this morning, oh, there's something going on in your soul. There's, there's a sin, there's a habit, there's something in your life that you know has created a distance and, you, and God's saying this morning, he's shown himself to you, saying return, come back. The only way this got solved, still not completely solved, is I had to lay down on a table and surrender. I, I had to surrender. I had to say fix it because I can't. Friends, this morning, you can't fix. You can't fix the things of your own life. All you can do this morning is identify and sense what has God revealed to you this morning. I want you to close your eyes with me. I'm going to ask you to do a certain response this morning. And we're going to lead the first part of communion for only those of you who sense this morning that you need to let go of something in your life, a sin, and return. I'm going to ask some of you just to stand up as the song starts that need to go to the cross as there'll be some elders, 
some shepherd elders, some staff at these crosses, and I want you just to make the response of going there and saying, as a symbol of going first, I'm saying, I'm returning. Because I've, I understand there's a gap between my relationship with God and how I'm living. Father, this morning, I pray your Holy Spirit lays heavy on us in this room. God, even this morning, I know there are things in my life I need to return and leave behind. God, for those this morning, I pray that feel a sense of they need to return. Would you have them stand this morning, Father, and just move to communion? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as a response to this song, those of you who just feel like a symbol this morning just to return, will you just stand and go to communion? You don't have to pray with anybody. Just go to communion right now. That you just want to return. And I'll invite the rest of you to communion in a moment. But I want some of you just to go as a response. It's, it's, a, it's a moment for you to say, God, I'm symbolically returning. I've seen you this morning. sacrifice of Jesus Christ.
us to respond by returning to you, crying out, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we are just living in this amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> 